I was fascinated by the different people who would come into her courtroom, by the different scenarios and lawsuits they'd bring. I was impressed by Judge Judy's no-nonsense way of getting to the truth. I'd try to guess every night how she was going to rule in different cases. Here's the thing about Judge Judy, if you've ever watched, or if you haven't. The cases are sensational. The people that appear on that show are a little out there. <laughs> and oftentimes, the cases and scenarios would have never happened if we could just be decent people to one another. Judge Judy's job was to assess harm. Her job was to assess how much harm was done in a situation and if that harm warranted compensation from the harming party. There is harm that we can do to each other that does not transgress the law. But there is tortious harm that we can do that requires damages and reparations. Our theme for this month's sermons is the question, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? If I was brought before Judge Judy for being a follower of Christ, how would she rule? That's just a mental image. It's right there. And we're going to ask that question in light of John Wesley's three rules for Christian living. Do no harm. Do good. Attend to the ordinances of God. Attend to the ordinances of God. That's going to be a fun one. This morning, we begin with the first rule, do no harm. It's somewhat strange that the first step in Christian living, the first step in living a Christian life, the first step in proving, in a sense, that you're a follower of Christ is doing no harm. We might have thought the first step would be doing good, a positive rule instead of a negative or passive rule. But perhaps the fact that our laws codify the different types of harm we can do to one another alerts us to the necessity to talk about not doing harm. On New Year's Eve, we read from Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we're going to do so, spoiler alert, in a few minutes. And I said that Paul's letter to the Galatians centered around a conflict in the church. Paul had started a church there and then had left to go start another church or to go check in on one of the other churches he started, uh, or to return to Jerusalem to bring back the money from the churches that he started there, one of those or other things. And when Paul left, some other folks came in behind Paul. Paul had told the Galatians that um, worship of the God of Israel and of Jesus the Christ had been opened up to the Gentiles, that they had been grafted into the tree of Israel. But that didn't... But doing so did not require them to follow Torah law. And perhaps most importantly for the grown men of the Galatian church, it didn't require circumcision. There's no way for me to talk about circumcision without one, being awkward, and two, making a bad joke. So I apologize. So these new people came in behind Paul and started telling the new Galatian Christians that if they wanted to be super righteous, they would get circumcised and follow Torah law. Some in the Galatian church bought it, perhaps wanting a way to be more righteous than others. And others remained in the teaching that Paul had given them. So they fought about it. In his letter, Paul comes down hard on the super-righteous folk, the ones who were circumcised in order to appear more righteous 
Um, and then, and also comes down hard on the teachers that led them to do that. Paul says that Christ set you free from the law. Don't return under its yoke. You have been adopted by God, and that adoption was meant to make was was not meant to make you a slave. At the beginning of the fifth chapter, Paul says, "It is for freedom that Christ has set us free." Towards the end of the fifth chapter, Paul sums up the whole letter and offers them instructions on how to move forward. So now we're going to pick up Galatians 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So we're going to take this in parts. After reminding the Galatians that they were called to be free, Paul says, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Paul is defining for the Galatians what it is to have freedom. It is not just freedom from freedom from the law, freedom from sin, freedom from guilt. But it is freedom for as well. Freedom for love, freedom for community, freedom for reconciliation. But the basis of this freedom is what Paul finishes with. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. You see, Paul was trying to resolve the dispute and to allow that resolution to create community. That community would not be possible if the super-righteous continued to hold their righteousness over others or if the ones Paul were saying were right were to hold their win over the super-righteous. They needed to stop devouring each other. They needed to stop attacking each other. They needed to stop doing harm to each other. Have you ever been in a fight or an argument, and even after the fight or argument, you were still biting and devouring each other? When you hold over the other person's head what they did, what they said, that you won, was that resolution 
Or was it just an end to the fight? Was it reconciliation? Was it community and relationship? Was it love? Before we can get to do good in the rules, we have to stop doing harm. And what Paul was saying to the Galatians in his in summation was that before they could love each other, before they could be in community with each other, before they could find peace and reconciliation, they had to stop doing harm. But this isn't just about a church dispute, and it's not just about our interpersonal conflicts. Sorry. Paul continues by saying, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says that the proper use of our freedom involves putting some things aside. If you were here last week, this will sound familiar, because he does a similar thing in his letter to the Colossians that we looked at last week. But we are to put aside the acts of the flesh, and many of them are ways that we do harm to one another. Sexual immorality. How often do we harm each other through sexual immorality? I remember the weekend that the hashtag MeToo movement started on Facebook and social media, and just being broken at the ways that harm had been done, the ways that, that, that folks had been harmed by sexual assault and sexual violence. We do harm when we make idols of things. Oftentimes we think of idolatry as worshiping a statue and we don't have a, have a, a Parthenon, so we're fine, but it's much more than that. Think about how many Greek gods or Roman gods were tied to the economy. The god of the harvest, the god of grain, the god of war, the god of fertility, the god of the sea. Greek and Roman folks, they wanted wealth, they wanted strength, they wanted control. We make idols for ourselves, we just don't construct statues to them. Idolatry involves worshiping something created in place of the creator. It means worshiping something in place of God. And we do this all the time. We worship money, we worship security, we worship success. And we're willing to set aside God in those pursuits. And we're willing to harm others if it means gaining those things that we worship. We do harm through hatred. We do harm through sowing discord. We do harm through jealousy. We do harm in fits of rage. Just get on 95 during rush hour. We do harm when we are only out for ourselves. We do harm when we break people into groups and attempt to devour them. We do harm when we envy what others have, when we must have what someone else has. And when we continue in doing harm, we will never see the fullness of the kingdom of God in our midst. We will never see creation as God intended. 
Paul told the Galatian church that they will never see reconciliation, love, and community if they kept devouring each other. We will never see the full restoration. We will never see real love. We will never see the beloved community if we continue doing harm to one another. Well, great. Now we see all the ways we harm one another. Pastor Matt, are you going to leave us there? How do we stop doing harm? How do we stop doing acts of the flesh, as Paul puts it? We embrace life in the Spirit. We embody the fruit of the Spirit. Paul finishes this section saying, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. I always forget one. Self-control. That was a joke because I can't control myself. Um, Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Notice how many of these fruits of the Spirit are primarily about doing no harm. Eventually, they can lead to doing good, but for the most part, they're, they're about not allowing any more harm to enter the universe. Being loving instead of being hateful. Being joyful instead of being snarky. Being peaceful instead of being violent. Bearing with people instead of dismissing them. Being kind instead of being mean. Keeping fidelity. Being gentle. Exhibiting self-control instead of lashing out when Ty Jerome can't make a three-pointer to save his... <laughs> All of these dispositions keep harm from coming into the world. As a simple rule, as a general rule, as a rule for Christian living, do no harm seems easy and straightforward. You hear it and you think, yep, no duh. Being a Christian ought to mean not being outright horrible to another. But think with me for a moment of how hard it would be to go a whole day without doing harm. And for a moment, we won't talk about the systemic harms that we are all party to. We'll just look at harms that we do to other people on a personal level. You're driving around and someone cuts you off. Do no harm. At work, someone doesn't follow through on a task. Do no harm. Someone gossips about you. Do no harm. Someone takes your place in line. Do no harm. Someone takes the parking spot and you had your blinker on. Do no harm. Someone makes a joke at your expense. Do no harm. Work is just plain bad. Do no harm. Here's what makes doing no harm so hard. The rest of the world doesn't abide by that rule. I think it would be really easy to do no harm if we were assured we wouldn't encounter harm ourselves going about our daily lives. If the goal was just to keep everything copacetic, the job would be a lot easier. But that's not the world we live in. That's not our lives. Instead, we live in a world where we face harm on a daily basis. We live in a world where people are mean, where people are rude, where people are nasty, where people will bite at us and attempt to devour us, where people will engage in the acts of the flesh. And it is in that world 
not a utopian good place where we are tasked with doing good, with, sorry, with going and doing no harm. I'm getting ahead to next week. Where we are tasked with not returning evil for evil. We are tasked with not biting back. And therein lies the rub. Doing no harm means from time to time we will accept being hurt and choose not to hurt back. Doing no harm means from time to time we will have to accept things being unfair. We will have to accept harm being done to us. Doing no harm means not escalating things. Doing no harm means we live differently, we act differently, we embody conflict differently. Reuben Job, who is a bishop in the United Methodist Church, wrote a book on these three rules called Three Simple Rules. And about doing no harm, he wrote, each of us knows of groups that are locked in conflict, sometimes over profound issues and sometimes over issues that are just plain silly. I've never been in a just plain silly conflict, have, have you? No. But the conflict is real, the division's deep, and the consequences can often be devastating. If, however, all who are involved can agree to do no harm, the climate in which the conflict is going is immediately changed. How is it changed? Well, if I am to do no harm, I can no longer gossip about the conflict. I can no longer speak disparagingly about those involved in the conflict. I can no longer manipulate the facts of the conflict. I can no longer diminish those who do not agree with me and must honor each as a child of God. I will guard my lips, my mind, and my heart so that my language will not disparage, injure, or wound another child of God. I must do no harm, even while I seek a common good. And I would add, I must do all these things while knowing that these things I have determined not to do will perhaps be done by others and perhaps against me. That's hard. That's really hard. But it also embodies Christ in the world. To do no harm is to live differently. It is to live in a way demonstrably different from the shadow side ways of the world. People will take notice if you live your life doing no harm. Talk about bearing Christ in the world. There was a Roman centurion whose job it was to oversee the crucifixion, the execution of Jesus. He saw how the people mocked him. He saw how Jesus had been beaten and tortured. And he saw that as Jesus was dying, the sun went black. And realized clearly, clearly, Jesus could have fought back. And had Jesus fought back, probably would have won. Jesus could have stopped what was happening, could have stopped his execution, but he didn't. And the centurion declared, surely this man was the Son of God. If you resolve to do no harm, people will know. People will see. People will realize that there is something that makes you different. This week in Pastor Matt's book club, I have the book Wonder. I don't know how many of you have, have read this, um, but if you had, and you're like me, you, you read the last 40 pages through tear-stained eyes. Um, yes, it was watery eyes, teary eyes make reading difficult. I needed the last 40 pages on tape or something. Um, it's called Wonder, I take issue with the singular. This book is filled with people who are wonders. 
There is one particular character named uh, Augie Pullman who is, uh, has facial deformities, and he goes to school. And it's the story of how he goes to school. In the book, he faces um, ridicule. He is mocked. Kids are mean to him. But there are also kids who are kind to him. His older sister is incredibly kind to him. His best friends are kind to him. His teachers are kind to him. This book is filled with people who resolved to do no harm. And it will bring tears to your eyes. So will the movie. If you resolve to do no harm, people will take notice. If you resolve to do no harm, people will marvel at the wonder of it. And if one day you are put on trial for being a Christian, the first piece of evidence, exhibit A, if you will, will be that first you did no harm. In a world full of hurt and hate and violence and destruction, you added nothing to it. You did nothing to escalate it. You did no harm. 